I finally reached the wonder years. I wonder where I parked my car. I wonder where I left my phone. I wonder where my glasses are. wonder what day it is. Bob forgot his wedding anniversary. His wife was mad. She told him, tomorrow morning I expect to find a gift in the driveway that goes from zero to 206 seconds, and it better be there tomorrow. The next morning when she got up, she looked out the window and she found a box out there. It was gift wrapped in the middle of the driveway. She opened it up and she found a new set of bathroom scales. <laughs> Bob has been missing ever since then. Yes. Yes, please do. Yeah, yeah, there sure is. Has everybody gotten a card that uh, Andre has passed out? Okay, I want you to write on that card. And by the way, does anybody need a pen? Does anybody need a pen to write with? We've got some uh, Widowhood Workshop pens. Okay, I want you to write on that card uh, your uh, first name. I don't want your age. Uh, write down your first name. Andre, does anybody need any of these? Write down your first name and how many years in your life you've been married. How many years in your life you've been married? 70. 70. There's a member, a couple at the congregation in Villarica, Georgia. They've been married, I think, 72 or 73 years. Isn't that amazing? In uh, Somerville, South Carolina, I met a couple who uh, have been married 73 years. And you know who comes with them to church? Uh, him and her and their little dog. And they always sit in the back left corner of the auditorium. That little dog comes with them. I guess after you've been married 70 plus years, you can come with a little dog to church if you want to. Uh, <laughs> oh. Okay, Andre, thank you for that. Okay. Whenever uh, you lose your spouse, there are a lot of ancillary losses, or you might call them collateral damage. Stop and think about this when you lose your spouse. You've lost your confidant, your best friend, your decision helper. You've lost your normal. You've lost your routine. You've lost your traditions. You've lost your couple friends. You've lost your shared dreams. You've lost your anniversaries together. You've lost your expected future. You've lost your identity. You've lost the intimacy. You've lost your greatest emotional support. You've lost your biggest cheerleader. That's a lot of loss. That explains why people like me uh, would have come to Jesus moments after loss and ask, what's wrong with me? I had no idea what it was like. I want to tell you about Millie. No offense to all the widowed people I've ever met. I describe her as my favorite widow. I was preaching in a gospel meeting at the Grosbeck Church of Christ on the north side of Cincinnati. And a good friend of mine, Mark Phillips, was uh, the preacher there. And he said, Dean, I've got this 90-plus-year-old woman who wants to take you out to lunch this week. Well, I'd been married for 41 years and had three daughters, and I knew not to say no to a female, especially if she was over 90 years old. I said, Mark, go ahead and fix it up. And so... I go on this blind date with this 90-plus-year-old lady, and she takes me to a Japanese restaurant, which I thought that was kind of weird. I didn't know 90-plus-year-old females ate at Japanese restaurants, but we went to this nice Japanese restaurant, and the waiter came, and we then gave him our order, and then he left. When he left, uh, I did with her what I like to do with widowed people when I'm in a 
more private setting. And I said, Millie, I said, tell me about uh, your story. Tell me about your life. And I said, tell me about your love and your loss. And so she proceeded to tell me about how that she'd been married for 63 years. And she told me about how he was as a father. And she told me about him getting cancer. And she told me about the caregiving that she did at their home together. And she told me about him dying. And then after she told me that story, a very touching story, she said, but that wasn't my first husband. That really took me back. And I said, Millie, I said, tell me about your first husband. She said, well, I was 19 years old. And we were married. We had a child about one year old. And I was pregnant. He was in General Patton's army in the Battle of the Bulge. And he died. He died in that battle. I can remember exactly the words she used after that. She said, I had him buried in France. And she added, that's a decision that to this day I regret. Now I want you to think about Millie, age 19, one-year-old child, pregnant, mid-1940s. How in the world did that woman survive? It was about four years later that she met um, the second husband, and they were married for 63 years. After I'd heard her story, I shared her story at other occasions when I did workshops. And sometimes I would call her on the phone afterwards, and I would tell her, I said, Millie, I want you to know I told your story of love and loss and love again and loss again. And I said, I want you to know, Millie, that your story is having an impact on other people. Your story can be an inspiration to other people. Other people can understand and appreciate from your story that it is possible to live after loss. It's hard, but it's possible. Well, she died on July 4th of 2018. I thought that was so appropriate that she would die on July 4th of 2018. Millie, I always describe her as my favorite uh, widow. What an amazing person. Uh, the third book uh, that I've written that's uh, Amazon, going to be turned over to Amazon here in the next few days. The first two I wrote are up here on the table, if you'd be interested in them. But the third book that I wrote is dedicated to all the widowed people that I've met, who I look at as some of my greatest inspiration to keep on living and keep on serving. I've really enjoyed and appreciated the widowed people I've met along the way. What are the risk factors of widowhood? Well, the first risk factor is you got to get hitched. you got to say, I do. And if you say, I do, you got to stay married. If you're going to experience widowhood, you've got to stay married. Not everybody who says, I do, stays married. And the third is you keep living. If you get hitched and you stay married and you keep living then you're it. You know, tag, you're it. You're the one that's left behind. I wish I had a dollar for every widowed person who came to me and said, we both thought I would be the one that would go first. Sometimes things are not like we think they're going to be or like we plan. So I want to open it up for discussion now. And for the next five minutes or so, I want you to reel off a bunch of different things 
that you would think in our culture that we would associate with widowhood. Things that you would associate with widowhood. Go. Anybody. Loneliness. Almost always that is the first thing that's mentioned. Loneliness. Not fitting in. The misfit thing. Not fitting in. Why do you not fit in? What were you before that you're not now? You were coupled. What kind of world do we live in? A coupled world. So you are a misfit. You are an individual in a coupled world. By the way, not only those of us who are widowed, I did not realize this until reconnecting with a person that I went to Fried Hardeman College with back in the 1970s. Uh, she's never been married. She's the same age as I am. She's never been married. Now, she was engaged when we were in school. She got engaged. The guy broke it off, but she's never been married. I did some research about this after talking with her about this because I got to thinking, boy, there's another area of ministry, ministering to adults who've never married. There are half a million never married people in our country. She, was, she told me a story about uh, she was in a visitation meeting after Sunday night church. They'd eaten together. And then the man who was in charge of the ministry got up and, and they were assigning visits then before they departed. And when the visits were assigned, he turned to her and he said, what are you doing here? I have a friend, a very dear friend, who her best friend told her, I can't invite you over to the house when I have dinner meetings because then it would be an odd number. That was her best friend that said that. The world is a coupled world. The church is a, a, the church is a coupled. Do you know the two hardest places for a widowed person to go? The two hardest places for a widowed person to go. Church is one. You wouldn't think that, though. I didn't realize that. For all those years, I didn't realize that. But if you've gone to church with that person for decades, and now you're alone. One thing that pains me when I'm preaching is when I see a widowed person sit by themselves. Here's a ministry that I thought was really cool. Cheryl Wayne and I were in Mission, Texas. That's about as far down in Mission, Texas, about as far, far down in Texas as you can go, right on the Rio Grande. There was a young couple there at that church, and this was before we came there, who told us about one of their Sunday morning ministries. They come into the auditorium, and they spy out the people who are there, and then they go to a widowed person, and they ask for permission to sit with them. Isn't that neat? A young couple without children are doing that. But yet here we've got people who are coming to church, who are struggling with church mightily, and the vast majority of the people in that same group don't know about their challenge. The second hard, hard place to go is to bed. Going to bed is a blunt reminder. You are A-L-O-N-E. You go to bed that way, and you wake up that way. I've had both males and females, members of the church, who have told me that after their spouse died, they couldn't go back to bed. They slept on the couch for months as they tried to recuperate and heal before they could go back to the bedroom. So yes, uh, loneliness is a huge issue. And the being alone, the feeling like a misfit is another one. Give me something else that you would associate with widowhood. 
Financial adjustment, uh, financial insecurity might be an issue. Uh, a lot of people jump to the conclusion that because we have a culture where we have what we call a social network, uh, social security, that that solves that problem. It does not solve that problem. You were 54 when he passed away. The U.S. Census Bureau says that elderly women, now by the way, I don't know the definition of the numbers of what the government says is an elderly woman, okay? But here's what I read. Elderly, from the U.S. Census Bureau, elderly women who are not married are three to four times more likely to live in poverty than elderly females who are married. Three to four times more likely to live in poverty. There can be some financial jeopardy involved. What else might you associate with widowhood? Um, Martha Rushmore called me before she became Rushmore. Uh, her husband, Bob, passed away, and she called me one November, and she was living in Ocala, Florida at the time. And during the course of the conversation, here's what Martha said. I hate being a man. I said, you know, I'd been living with a wife for 41 years and had three daughters, and I, I sometimes don't, don't know what women are talking about. So I had to ask, what do you mean by that? So I asked Martha on that occasion. I said, Martha, what do you mean by that? She said, I hate doing what he is supposed to be doing. I made the mistake of going a little bit further, digging deeper, and I said, well, like what? She said, I hate taking the trash out to the road. I hate that. He should be doing that. Yeah, you're, it, everything falls on you. Where you had somebody to work with and maybe somebody who just took the load of a certain issue and, and took care of it, it's not like that anymore. Uh, Diane, I remember, I don't know how long ago it was, you did something with your car and posted about it on Facebook. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, <laughs> change the light bulb in the car. YouTube is your friend. Exactly, yes. Now, think of what else was associate, would you associate with widowhood? What? Sadness. Okay, sadness. Eating out. Do you know there are the vast majority of widowed females I've met will not do that. Now, you can go into a Cracker Barrel, and you could see a man older than dirt sitting by himself. You might even see me there, okay? <clears throat> but widowed females, very few of them will go out and eat by themselves. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going out to eat. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've, I've done surveys about this. Very few females, now I'd, I'd be curious, those of you who are widowed now, where do you eat? Now let me explain what I mean by the question. Where do you eat now compared to where you used to eat when you were married? I'm talking about the location in your house. Where do you eat now? Is it different than where you ate you're shaking your head, yes. Where did you typically eat when you were married? At the table. But you don't eat there anymore, do you? Yeah. As a matter of fact, widowed people don't cook much. For years and years, I heard um, females who had an empty nest say it's hard to cook for two. If it's hard to cook for two, when there's only one, what do you do? It's harder to cook for one than it is two. Yes. And a lot of times, widowed people don't eat well. 
Let me tell you about Bill over in West Tennessee. I was talking to Bill, and one day he said he eats the same place three times a day. I said, Bill, what? now I, I like Cracker Barrel, but I'm not eating at Cracker Barrel three times a day. I couldn't afford to anyway, but Bill, where do you eat three times a day? He said, Dairy Queen. For breakfast? <laughs> yeah. It's a different life, man. It just, it's a very different life. And give me something else that you would associate with widowhood. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I've got a picture of my refrigerator doors opened up. It's side by side. And so the freezer and then the refrigerator. I've got the doors open. Uh, it's on my phone now, and I'm going to post it in a private group. I have a, I don't usually mention this, but I'll make an exception here. I have a private Facebook group that is exclusively for widowed people who are members of the church. If you're on Facebook and you'd like to be a part of that group, uh, I'll help you get in that group today. Uh, but I'm, I'm fixing to post that picture in that private Facebook group, and here's what I'm going to ask. What is different about the contents of your refrigerator now compared to when you were married? It was full then. Not so much now. But now it's full of leftovers. Now, yeah, leftovers and mold. Yeah. You go out to eat, you bring it home. Yeah. Can you think of anything else that you would associate with widowhood? Can you get a couple more? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Jewel and Jim were married for how long? So, you were married for 28 years. He passes away. And then what do you do? You were a woman of courage, but your loss caused you to lose your courage, so you had to rebuild your courage. Okay, loss of courage. Okay, can you think of anything else? Grandparenting. It was easier grandparenting as a team. Now you're by yourself. Okay, let me throw out a bunch of things that will really open your mind, especially if you've never experienced this. There are all kinds of things. There's grief and relief. <clears throat> now, we don't typically associate relief with the loss of a spouse. But if you stop and think about it, there can be relief. If you've been caregiving for years, you can have relief. Now, if you have relief and you think you should be feeling totally grief, but you also have relief, how are you going to feel about that? Guilty. Yeah, you're guilty. So you've got to work through that. So there's a lot of internal issues here that we have that we have to deal with. Grief is obvious, but also there can be relief. And sometimes there can be more relief than grief. Think about uh, a woman who's experienced domestic violence for years. Her husband dies. She may experience more relief than grief. And that's okay. She shouldn't feel guilty about it. But she's probably going to struggle with that. Feeling that relief when she thinks that she should be wholly feeling grief. And then tears and no tears. Um, I have uh, an affliction. I describe it as overexposure to the female gender. Because of having a wife for 41 years and three daughters, I'm messed up. And I admit it. Uh, I am an overly emotional male. I'm much more emotional than the typical male. Uh, I can cry at the drop of a hat. Uh, I love Hallmark movies. Please don't be spreading rumors about this. 
okay? I love Hallmark movies, okay? Um, now, some people are not so much like that. There are some people that cry a lot. There are some people who don't cry hardly at all. And there are also, physiologically, some people who cannot cry. Did you know that? There are some people. Now, if you think that when you lose your spouse, you're supposed to cry a lot, but you're not crying a lot, then how are you going to feel? You're guilty again, see? This internal issue that you have about a bunch of stuff. You've got heartache like you've never experienced before because you've never been through this before, and you start having questions that you've never had before in your life. Questions about you, questions about your friends, questions about the church, questions about God, questions about your future. You might even have a faith struggle. Do you remember the father who brought the demon-possessed only child to Jesus? And he was seeking healing for his son. And he had watched this son have all these symptoms of the foaming at the mouth and the flopping around. And this had been going on for years and years and years. And he takes the boy to Jesus. And what does he say? Lord, I believe, but then help my unbelief. We should not be embarrassed if we have a faith struggle. That is nothing to be embarrassed by. As a matter of fact, that faith struggle that you have you can convert into a blessing. And here's how. Keep fighting. Keep struggling. Do not leave the Lord nor his church. Have an iron-willed determination that you're going to keep trusting even when you don't understand. And you have a lot of questions, especially why. If we have faith struggles, it's kind of like working out physically. When you work out physically and you haven't done that for a while, what happens to your body? What happens to your muscles? They get sore. They hurt, don't they? But is that hurting good for you? Yes, it's good for you. And you keep working with that hurting, and then what happens eventually? It goes away, and because you're stronger. Having a faith struggle is nothing to be embarrassed by. As a matter of fact, it's something to tell others about. Those that you can trust within your social circle. Let them know that you're struggling. And it's okay to admit that. And then there's the loneliness that you mentioned. Kathy Lee Gifford was married for 29 years to a great halfback for the New York Giants. That's how I remember him, Frank Gifford. They lived for 29 years together. He passed away in 2015. Where did she live? Geographically, do you remember where she lived? Now she lives in Franklin, Tennessee, but where was she? She was in the New York area. Okay? The Tennessean had an interview with her. And here is what she said. I moved here, talking about Franklin, Tennessee, I moved here because I was dying of loneliness. She was interviewed for AARP magazine. And in that interview, she talked about her loneliness as crippling loneliness. There is nothing like the loneliness that comes from the loss of the dearest on earth to you. It is a monumental struggle. Why would you have an identity crisis? When you're married, what are you? What title do you have? Okay, you're a couple, you're half of a couple, 
If the couple doesn't exist anymore, what are you? See, there's the problem. What are you? You used to be, but what are you now? Who are you now? There's an identity crisis that you have to deal with. There can be financial jeopardy involved. What you're dealing with is what we talked about last night, forced change. And you have to deal with the absence of the person. When you look in the chair that they typically sat in, what do you see? It's empty. You have to deal with the fact that sometimes you're going to see things that aren't there. They're really not there, but you see them. You're also going to think you hear things that really aren't sounds, but you're hearing them because you're dealing with the absence of that person. You're going to have dreams. You may have dreams for years. I've talked to people who've been widowed for over 15 years and still on occasion have dreams about their spouse. You're not going crazy. That's very normal. As a matter of fact, I've had a lot of people tell me that having those dreams, they view as kind of like a visit and they see them positively, not negatively, and actually they wish that they'd last longer. But you deal with that. You've got to deal with the silence in the house. What does a withered person often do, do you think, when they get up in the morning? Turn the TV on. And how long is the TV on? All day long. I can remember one time when I felt compelled, I had to turn on the radio. I was doing some baking in the kitchen, and, and the silence was getting to me, and I turned on the radio. But you've got to deal with the silence. You've got an emptiness that you're experiencing you've never experienced before, and you are dependent now, whether you like it or not, whether you're willing to admit it or not, you are dependent. One of the books over here on the display highly recommends that when you lose your spouse, you appoint a board of directors for your life. You have somebody on that board that you go to, the go-to person for your finances, the go-to person for your spiritual issues, a go-to person as far as a care of the home or dealing with the automobile, that kind of thing, but having people in your life to help you because you do need help. One of the reasons you need help is because you are not normal. Your normal's been blown up. You can't be normal. You're a human being. You're not a machine. You know, you're not a 350 cubic V8 engine. You know, you're not a laptop computer. You're not a screen, a TV. You're a human being. A human being has a thinker and a feeler. And after you experience loss, you're going to be messed up in your head. Your thinker's going to be messed up. And your feeler's going to be messed up. A lady in Southern California introduced me to a book just a few weeks ago that I'm reading now. It's called The Grieving Brain. It's written by a neuroscientist. This woman has for decades studied the effect of loss on the brain. It is a really interesting book. And one of the things that she points out in this book is that after you've lost your spouse, there is a tremendous amount of relearning that your brain has to do. And when your brain is relearning things, it takes time and effort. It really does have an effect on us, and it really does cause us to be in a more dependent state. We need to be careful about making our decisions and making our moves, and we need to make sure that we have people that we can count on to help us out. You're going to have stress like you've never had before, and there may be times that you're going to experience anger. Who in the world would you be angry with? I mean, death happens. Who, who would you possibly be angry at? Your spouse for dying. You're mad at your spouse for dying. 
Now, how crazy is that? It's crazy. It's crazy human. Yeah, you can be angry at yourself. Um, she'd get in the shower, she told me, down in Florida. She'd get in the shower, and sometimes she'd pound the side of the shower, and she'd say, why did you leave me? She was angry at him. And then, a sweet-hearted gal in Kansas gets COVID. Her husband gets COVID. She gave COVID to her husband. She got better. He died. Mm. Angry at yourself. Who else could you be angry at? God. Now, isn't that interesting that we get angry with God? And by the way, that's something that we need to share with other people to help us to work through that. There can be anger toward God. In the Bible, there are people who got upset with God. You know, Moses didn't always appreciate everything that God told him to do or God charged him to do. There were times he didn't understand God and he was burdened with these people that were just sometimes so obstinate, so hard-hearted. The anger that we can have sometimes with other people. And what about the medical profession? They make mistakes. They do the wrong thing. They give the wrong treatment. It happens. See, I can say that because that's not happened to me. But do you see how, you know, you can have anger, and the object of that anger could be a lot of different things, a lot of different people. You can have worry, and you can have fear, because now you're A-L-O-N-E. It's all on you. And what about your future? You're going to have a restlessness a lot of times at night, especially when the nights come early and they're so long in the late fall and the winter time. And can you imagine in Chester, West Virginia, the 80-some-year-old guy who came to me, bald-headed, lenses on his glasses about as thick as the bottom of the old Coke bottle. And he said, Dean, you need to add something to that list of things commonly associated with widowhood. And that's what he said, suicidal thoughts. What's it like to be widowed? Let me share with you. A retired preacher who lost his wife about a year ago. Now I live alone in a time that I do not understand. It is a lonely world of darkness, and I no longer fit in. I have no one to care for but myself. The one I devoted myself to is gone. Frankly, my wife, when she died, my life stopped. This is not the way we planned it. My whole life was gone, and she was not supposed to die before me. She laid my clothes out every morning to be sure that we matched. Marcia was married to Robert, the Stapletons. They were missionaries in Africa for a long time. And here's what she shared with me. After 47 years of marriage, after Bob died, she said, I know that I have to do my best each day, but it is hard at times. I never dreamed it would be this difficult. 
Kathy lost her husband in their 50s. She lives down in Florida. She texted me this on April 14th of 2020, and I asked permission to share it publicly. She said, I was told by a family member that loves me that time will heal. I don't think that is at all possible. 33 years of my life with my husband, sharing three children together was my whole world. I can't see past today, and the pain is too much. Buffy down in southwest Georgia shared this. Eight years ago, I married my best friend. Eight years ago, I never imagined my life would be the way it is now. I never dreamed that until death do us part and our vows would become my reality all too quickly. Marilyn lives in southeast Ohio, and here's what she wrote. I just dreamed, I'm sorry, I just cleaned my husband's room and washed the last sheets that he slept on so hard. Probably could have washed them with my tears. She also said, my husband passed from this world about two months ago. I still can't come to terms with it. He should still be here. It's so hard to come home to an empty house. Since he had lost his sight, I always, when I came in, cried out, me, so that he would know who it was. It feels like my heart is being ripped from my body. A sister over in Arkansas wrote this. I wasn't a person anymore. Couples turned their backs on me. A lady in Middle Tennessee wrote this. The mornings are so lonely. As I drink my coffee that he always made, I miss him reading scriptures because he had been up for a while. I long to hear that voice again. It's been 48 days and the ache is almost unbearable at times. I've gained a new respect for all who have lost someone that was the best part of us all. There's a book called Saturday Night Widows, and it's written by a lady up in uh, Long Island who, after her husband died, she was in her early 40s, when her husband died, she uh, went to a support group for the widowed and got kicked out. And so after she got kicked out of that support group, she decided to make her own. And so this Saturday Night Widow book is like an anecdotal novel about her experience of building this group of Saturday Night Widows. And in that anecdotal novel, on one evening when they were together, here's what Dawn said. Ever since this happened, I feel like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, like a tornado has picked up my house and is spinning it around and I just don't know where it's going to land. Let me read to you one of the most powerful statements from one of the books over there on the display table. If I could have one positive thing to come from Dale's death, it would be the ability to explain in words the utter overwhelming sadness of the loss. One of the primary differences between the death of your spouse and the loss of anyone else is that you have a level of physical intimacy with your spouse you just don't have with other people. That combined with the sheer amount of time you spent together heightens the loss. Until you live it, I'm not sure you can totally wrap your thoughts around the crushing magnitude of losing a spouse. Even as a strong woman with a powerful faith walk, a wonderful family, and a large support group, I was brought to my knees by Dale's death. I've totally changed how I think about life, marriage, and myself. Whatever happens in my future, I will never be the same. I share those and I could share more, 
to point out what a brutal experience it is to lose your spouse and what a difficult thing it is to choose to live after your spouse is gone. Sometimes what happens when the spouse dies, the person who's left behind chooses existence. Not living, just existence, just mere existence. There's a better choice. Why is it so difficult to lose your spouse? Well, let me share with you some thoughts that might help along that line. It's the only human relationship described in the Bible with those two words, one flesh. One flesh, the only one flesh relationship. In that marriage relationship, you're supposed to be participating in the total giving of the total self for a total lifetime. If you want a magnificent marriage, whether it's a first marriage or a second marriage, or a third marriage for that matter, the key to a magnificent marriage is giving. The total giving of the total self for a total lifetime. You have two people who buy into that. They cannot create a perfect marriage because you can't have something perfect come from two imperfect people throwing in together. The only, the only problem with marriage, it's not the theory, it's not the concept, it's not the institution. The only thing wrong with marriage is the people who are involved. Two imperfect people, that's what you have. That's the only kind of people that there are. So you have two imperfect people. But if they refuse to give up on one another, they can have a great marriage. And the way to refuse to give up on one another is both buy into this philosophy, embrace this philosophy, the total giving of the total self for a total lifetime. Now, if you say, I do, and you embrace that philosophy, and then your spouse dies, See, now there's the crushing magnitude of the loss of a spouse. Now, how you deal with that and how it affects you, there's a lot of things that are going to matter. Uh, your individual, never say, if you forget everything that I've said in this visit this weekend, please do not forget this. Never say to another person, never, ever say to another person, I know how you feel. Don't ever say that to another person because you don't. Those lips may fall from you, but you do not know. There's no way in the world you could. We are individuals. You know, just like our fingerprints distinguish us as individuals, the loss afterwards is distinctive too. The life afterwards is distinctive. We're all individuals. And then relationships are different. Some marriages are better than other marriages. The loss of a spouse when the marriage wasn't very good is different than the loss of a marriage where you've had total giving of the total self for a total lifetime. And then you've got all kinds of things. Families are different. Some families are very quiet. They don't communicate verbally with one another very much. That's going to impact the life after loss. And then you've got the timelines. You know, Brittany had only been married a a little over 1,000 days, 1,300 days plus. Well, that's different than losing a spouse after 63 years. See, there's a lot of things that are going to be different. The experiences that you've had as a married person, those accumulated experiences that you've had as a married person are going to matter after you've lost your mate. August 19th, 
is a hallmark day for me, and I'm going to do a Facebook post about this in a way of trying to communicate to married people. On August 19th, in a few days, if my wife was living, we'd be married 50 years. But we were only married 41 years. So I'm going to take a picture of the place where I proposed. I'm going to take a picture of the building where we were married. I'm going to take a picture of the place where we had the reception. And I'm going to remind married people, cherish what you have. Milk it for all you can. Love deeply. Express gratitude frequently. Because just like there's a beginning, there's an end. One of the two is going to be left behind. The experiences that you've had while you're married are going to cause you to have certain experiences afterwards because you had those experiences before. The dates are going to matter. The wedding anniversary date, the birthday. There are a lot of different things that are going to matter. There are going to be places that you go that are going to cause you to have grief triggers or grief waves come. Those are because of those experiences that you've had. And your faith is going to matter. Whether you have faith at all, if you have a lot of faith, or you don't have much, or you have a mediocre faith, that's going to factor into your life experience after your loss. Cheryl Wayne's going to pass out now a uh, fork, and I need one. And I want every widowed person to take one of these forks home with them today. Now, there are two purposes of this fork. Now, you can choose to use it to eat. If you want to lose weight, uh, you could choose to use it to eat, okay? But that's not why I am giving it to you. That's not the purpose of this. But I want every person who is widowed to make sure that you get one of these. Okay, now, your spouse has died, and what you need to do is focus on your self-care. You need to grieve deeply. One of the things that you need to do is take the advice of Doug Manning, who wrote this book, Don't Take My Grief Away. Don't take my grief away. Nobody has the right to stop you from grieving, to cheat you of what you need to do. You need to grieve. When we've lost our mate, we need to grieve deeply. That needs to be our focus of attention. You're put on a grief journey. You didn't want to be on one, but life forced you on a grief journey. Now, in your grief journey, after deep grieving, for as long as you need to, in whatever way you need to, nobody has the right to criticize you. You grieve how you need to grieve. At some point in time on that grief journey, you come to a fork in the road. You need to see the fork. When you pick up a fork, what have you decided to do? Eat. What else are you going to decide while you have that fork in your hand? What to eat. What else are you going to decide? How much to eat? When to put it down. To put it down. <laughs> okay. Let this fork remind you of decisions. You've got to start making some decisions about your life. Your heart's still beating, the blood's still coursing through your veins, the neurons are still, hopefully, bouncing back and forth between your ears. 
you've got to start making some decisions. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Now, that's not something that you ought to be thinking about while you're deep grieving. When you're deep grieving, that needs to be your total focus of attention. But at some point in time in your grief journey, you've got to realize that you've got to start making some decisions about what are you going to do with the life that you have now. When my wife passed away, I prayed for three things very passionately. I prayed, number one, that the Lord would open a door of opportunity so I could continue to minister in his name to his glory. I prayed for an open door of opportunity to minister. Number two, I prayed for the vision to see the open door. Sometimes the Lord opens doors in our life, but we're so involved with menial things and meaningless things, we don't see the open door. So I prayed for an open door of opportunity. I prayed for the vision to see the open door. And then I prayed thirdly for the courage to walk through that door to the other side. About 19 months after my wife passed away, I finally found a church that would take me in. You know how hard it is for a 61-year-old guy who doesn't have a wife to find a preaching job? And then another problem was I was a Yankee, and I was looking at the southeast part of the United States because that's where my daughters were and where my grandchildren were. It took me 19 months, and I finally found this little church that was grieving because they were no longer the church that they were. They went from 130 plus to about 55, just like that. They were hurting. We were a great match. I was grieving because of the loss of my wife. They were grieving because they weren't the church they were anymore. And the only thing I was asking for these churches to do, I said, please embrace the widowhood workshop ministry concept. Give me a little extra time to help build this ministry on the side. And I want to start a local widowhood ministry wherever I end up. Well, in Murray City, Tennessee, population 650, we started with a, literally a handful of widowed people, myself and about four widowed females. And we began inviting widowed people. And we ended up with over 20, with over 30, with over 40, on some months over 50 people from various religious groups who came monthly for a great meal, for a little bit of levity, and a great bit of good conversation about something practical that would help them with their life after their loss. We had conversions come from that ministry. Other churches have started similar ministries in different states. There's got to be something that we can do after we've suffered an agonizing loss. Some of you people who are older than dirt remember Batsel Barrett Baxter, who preached for the Herald of Truth Ministries. He wrote a book called When Life Tumbles In. He made this observation. Listen to this quote. When we must carry heavy burdens, we receive our greatest help, not from those who have never carried similar burdens while they stand on the sidelines and give bland advice, but from those who have been through the same valleys and have suffered the same problems. If you've suffered bankruptcy, you can help people who are going through bankruptcy. If you've experienced cancer, you're a great person to help somebody else with their cancer. If you've lost a child, you're a great person to help another person who's lost a child. If you've lost a spouse, you're a great person 
to help that person who's also lost their spouse. Just because we've lost our spouse doesn't get us a get-out-of-faithful card to play the rest of our life or a get-out-of-ministry card for the rest of our life. The first book I wrote was called When the End Comes. The second book was called Before the End Comes. The third book is called After the End Comes. And that third book has a chapter in it about ministry after loss. Challenging those of us who have lost our spouse to realize that we have gone through an agonizing loss, but we still have life. If we're still Christians, we're still a part of the body. We need to have a function. We need to find our niche in ministry. Now, I know a lot of times when we were married, we jointly did things together. But that marriage doesn't exist anymore. That person's not there. So we have to find a niche in ministry, and that niche in ministry can help us. It can be very therapeutic in our healing after our loss, too. But we've got to start making some decisions about our life because we're not dead. Now, we may feel dead. We may want to die but we are not dead. As a matter of fact, over there on the side, it says, don't die until you're dead. Now, you may want to die because the other person's died. You may feel dead, numb, but the fact is you're not. Don't die until you're dead. And you can still live. I can and I will. You can and you will survive. You can and will learn to cope. And you can and will grow and glorify God. Not in spite of what you've experienced, but because of what you've experienced. And you can be a greater blessing to other people than you've ever been before. You've paid a dear price for that qualification, for that ability. But use it for the glory of God. I love this remark of Helen Keller's. When one door of happiness closes, another one opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one that's been opened for us. When somebody dies in our life, a door's been closed. And what we do in deep grieving is we just stare at that door and we can't believe that door's shut. I mean, it's just, we can't conceive of that. And after a time, what happens is, we eventually, out of curiosity, I think, we kind of, metaphorically, we go to the door, we grab the handle, but it's locked. It's not just closed, it's locked. That person was a part of our life. Gary Smalley wrote a book called The DNA of Relationships. At the end of every chapter in that book, there's this quote. Life is relationships. The rest is details. Life is relationships. The rest is details. The life is relationships. The rest is details. If life is relationships and then that person dies, see, a part of you has died. That's why we struggle so mightily. That door's been closed and locked. And therapeutically, we look at that door and agonize and grieve deeply. But at some point in time, we've got to realize, is there another open door? Is there something we can do? Well, when it comes to after you've lost your spouse, whether you feel it or not, you're released or free. In regard to the marital responsibilities, you're released or free. Now, one thing that means is all the time and effort you invested in that relationship, you still have that time. What are you going to do with it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
There are several phrases used by the Apostle Paul that describe people who are single. And basically, what those descriptive phrases indicate is that you're more available than you've ever been before. You're more flexible than you've ever been before, and you have a unique bit of experience. So why not take all that time and effort that you've rightfully invested in that relationship and now choose to invest it in some kind of ministry for the glory of God? Because you are now a different person. That's what change and crises do. They change us. At first, they impact us greatly, and we have hardly no control. But eventually, in our journey, what we find out is that we do need to take control, retake control of our life, and start making some decisions so that we can continue to bring glory to God by the life that we're living. What are we going to do with the rest of our life? Widowhood is not just a time of grief. It's not just a time of sadness. It's a time of transition from marriage to widowhood. So it's a time of adjustment. It's also a time of opportunity because that one door is closed, another door has been opened. So what is going to be your new normal? What about your new beginning? What's it going to be? You have to make that decision. And what's really great about that is that's totally up to us. What's your future going to be? It's going to be what you make it. I wished I would have learned a lot of these things a lot earlier. But I hope if it's not helped you, maybe it will help you help other people. Uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to uh, eat together. And no doubt, from what I've seen already, it will be great what we eat together. Please uh, don't uh, leave, even though you probably have said, I'm not going to get married again. This last session is about marriage. Now, let me ask you to do something if you live in the area. If you know a young person who's not married yet, or any teenager, text them, beg them to come here, offer them $5, or 10 if you have to, because they really need to hear what we're going to talk about. One of the things that is problematic after we've lost our spouse is the whole issue of, you know, we've been so used to being married, and we may want even long to be married again. But then we have some real unique issues going from widowhood to being married again. Well, what's interesting in the study that I've done, what's interesting about that, it, that is a lot of things that widowed people need to think about before they get married again is the same kind of thing that people need to think about before they go from single to being married the very first time. So if you have any influence with others, please encourage them to come. But that's what we're going to talk about. And even if you never choose to get married again, what you can do in that session is you can take some notes and you can use some of the things that you learned in that last session to help somebody else as far as their need for a little bit of direction or wisdom about whether or not they're going to be married again or not. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together. Thank you for your book that reveals to us about very practical things that can help us with everyday life. Father, help us always in our life to choose living, living for you, bringing glory and honor to you, making our life for your glory, whether we're hurting or whether we're enjoying great prosperity and just enjoying a euphoric time in our life. 
Father, Father, whether it's prosperity or adversity, help us to trust in you and bring glory to you. Father, forgive us for how weak that we have been so frequently. Father, thank you for your patience while you see us struggle so much. Father, thank you for the strength, the hope, and the courage that you give us for everyday living, no matter what we're experiencing. Thank you for everybody who's come out here so far. We pray, Father, that you would accept our thanks for the food that we're going to eat. We thank you for the folks who have planned it and prepared it. Father, we're thankful for this church that opened their doors to permit others to come, to think out loud together about some really difficult life issues. Father, we pray that last night and today so far has been to the praise of your glory. That's, Father, what we desire. It's in the name of Jesus we come to you. Amen.